So let's get started with today's, this morning's um, lesson. And today we're going to start with the Satipatthana Sutta. And I'll be reading from the Diganakaya, uh, the Diganakaya's version of it. The Satipatthana Sutta appears in more than one place, but this is the version in the long discourses called the Maha Satipatthana Sutta. Maha meaning great or uh, maybe the longest one. Sati meaning mindfulness. Mindfulness. It's a, become very popular, that word, which is a good thing. But it basically means to remember to be here now. Mostly we're not here now. Mostly we're in the future or the past. We're lost in our thoughts. We spend very little of our waking time here now. We're just not present. So sati is, um, you know, remembering to be here now. So the maha sati patana sutta, patana, that means kind of foundations for being here now or establishments for mindfulness. So it's maybe a long definition of Maha Satipatthana would be the greater discourse on remembering uh, to be here now, especially with regard to these four areas that we're going to talk about, which is the body, feelings, mind states, and phenomena as it relates to the Buddhist teachings. Okay, so thus have I heard is how the sutta starts. And uh, this was an oral tradition that was passed down. So it's thus have I heard, not thus have I read, but these suttas uh, came down uh, through oral uh, recitation and memorization. Thus have I heard, once the Lord, that's the Buddha, once the Lord was staying among the Kurus, these are a particular uh, clan of people who lived in the Kuru country, which is sort of near Delhi in northern India. Thus have I heard, once the Lord was staying among the Kurus, there is a market town of theirs called Kamasadama, and there the Lord addressed the monks. Monks, uh, Lord, they replied, and the Lord said. Okay, just a comment about the Kuru country being over in Delhi. Um, the Buddha really taught in the Ganges Valley, which was east of Delhi, considerably east. I mean, he could have gotten over there, but some of the scholars think he likely didn't. But there were very learned practitioners in the Kuru country because the Buddhist teachings were spreading over there. They were spreading all over northern India. And so there's some disagreement about whether this sutta, which is now very famous and becomes the keystone for a lot of um, practices, uh, there's some discussion that it may not have actually been composed by the Buddha, but what we think 
our best guess is, is that um, his monks came together at one of the councils, most likely the second council, which was 60 to 100 years after the Buddha's death. The monks from the Kuru country uh, came to that council, which was held in the, actually, I'm not sure where that was held. But anyway, they came together there and brought the teachings that they had gotten in the Kuru country and compiled it into this into this one sutta. It's very good Dhamma. It's more likely than not the, what the Buddha taught and what migrated to the Kuru country, and they just put it all together in one sutta. So there was a first council that met within three years, three months of the Buddha's death. Uh, and they they did put together all of the suttas that were uh, had been re- recited and memorized up to that point. Um, and they met for a period of six months doing this, organizing all of the the vinaya precept stuff for the monks and nuns and all of the suttas. So the first two baskets, the vinaya and the and the sutta baskets. And then the second council of monks happened about 60 to 100 years after the Buddha's parinibbana, his death. Um, and that's this is where we think the monks from the uh, Kuru lands came and, and brought these, these different teachings that wound up in the Satipatthana Sutta. One of the reasons why the second council was brought together was because there was a disagreement about whether monks could uh, handle money. And it was early on established that they shouldn't, but there was a disagreement. And a big split occurred, and the Mahayanas left. Uh, they wanted to handle the money, and, and the other monks uh, stayed behind. And it's through the monks that stayed behind that the, eventually the Theravadan monks uh, formed. So during this, these councils, uh, the suttas were compiled and, um, and preserved, and about half of the suttas, roughly, were composed after the Buddha's death, but based on the teachings that he gave during his life. Okay, thus have I heard, once the Lord was staying among the Kurus, there is a market town of theirs called Kamasambada, Kama Sadama, and there the Lord addressed the monks. Monks, Lord, they replied, and the, the Lord said. So this is another common thing, too, with suttas. They'll say, um, you know, who the audience was and, and where the, the location of the sutta took place. And I imagine this was very helpful to the monks at these councils where they were trying to remember the teachings that he gave. You know, they, they were, there were 500 monks at the first council, and they're all trying to remember his teachings. And, you know, they say, well, this one happened in the Kuru country. And, oh, yeah, I was there. Okay, I'm on board with that. So maybe they sent all the people who were in the together or, or the different places. Savati was another place where a lot of the teachings occurred. And they could remember the teachings that occurred there. And they could remember the audience. And the, remembering the audience is important because... 
the Buddha's teachings were geared towards his audience. If he was te- speaking to the Jains, he spoke one way. If he spoke to the Brahmins, another. If he was speaking to the monks, a third. If he was speaking to a very esteemed monk, which, and you know it's an esteemed monk if the monk's name is prefaced with the word venerable in the sutta, this is going to be a deep teaching. Okay, and then the Buddha goes on to say, there is, monks, this one way to the purification of beings. This one way. Um, Sometimes that's translated as this, a direct path, the one going path. He's getting ready to give a teaching on the one way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of nibbana. That is to say, these four foundations of mindfulness. So this is considered a teaching on that one way, uh, that narrow path that no one else, there's not enough room on this path for anyone else to walk it with you. you got to walk it alone. So it's an exclusive path, a path that goes in only one direction, towards Nibbana. And it has one goal, Nibbana. All right, this uh, one-going way uh, for the purification of beings dot, 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 nibbana. And that, namely, the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, monks, a monk, and by the way, every time it says monk or bhikkhu, especially in this this sutta, but in others as well, it means someone who is following these directions. You don't have to be a monk for this sutta to apply to you. This is for anyone traveling this path. So what are these four foundations here, monk? A monk abides contemplating body as body. And just a note on that, too, body as body. Um, I made a note here about two things regarding that phrase, body as body. We touched on it a little bit the other day. There's two aspects to that. One is looking at the body as impersonal. So as you, as we go through this first foundation of mindfulness on the body as body, we're looking at it and contemplating it as not my body, but a body. So it has more of an impersonal flavor to it. The second aspect of, of body as body is just noticing the sensations in the body. Can you feel the sensations of your feet? The pressure of your feet right now, what are they touching? Can you notice the sensations without an idea of a foot? So it's just the sensations. Just the field of sensations. Okay, what are the four? Here amongst the monk abides contemplating Body is body, impersonal and field of sensations. Ardent, clearly aware and mindful. Okay, so you're wide awake doing this. You're not in a sinking mind. You're being ardent, clearly aware and mindful. 
have a, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. This is what's so great about being on a retreat. You have put aside hankering and fretting for the world. You're here. The world's out there. By now, you've probably left a lot of that behind so that you're in prime shape to contemplate these four foundations. A monk abides contemplating feeling as feelings. That's Vedana, which we'll talk more about. He abides contemplating mind as mind or chitta as chitta. It means here mind states. And he abides contemplating mind objects as objects, phenomena, with regard to the Buddhist teachings, which are there's five categories, and we'll cover that. And he remains ardent, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. So, like I said, we spend most of our time lost in thought. We spend very little time in the here and now. And one way to land in the here and now is to land in the body. It can be a real good anchor. You might want to wiggle your toes to find your body. Notice the sensation of the feet, pressure, the field of sensations. Notice the field of sensations in the rear end, or the field of sensations in your hands. This is moving your attention away from thought and into the body, anchoring you in the here and now. One time a friend of mine was uh, the um, she applied and was interviewing to become a uh, an appellate a federal appellate judge, and she had to go before the Senate to get confirmed. And she never meditated in her life, but she called me and she said, "Mary, what can I do?" And you know, her Senate hearing was the next day. And I said, just be mindful of your feet on the floor or your hands on the table or both whenever you can. This, um, this is something I used to do when I was in court a lot. I would just be mindful of my hands and on the table. And so I suggested it to her. And she called me, you know, within a day or so of the hearing and she said it was so helpful to her, even though she wasn't a meditator. Uh, she said before the hearing started, she did it. During the breaks, she did it. Um, and even during the hearing itself, while it was between the senators asking her questions, she did it. And it really calmed her stress. The body holds many truths including the truth of impermanence, also holds our intuition. So now that I'm no, more, no longer as attached to my logical mind, as 
Sometimes I just drop down into the body for the answer. It also holds memories of past suffering as well as joy. And if we've had trauma, we might need to take time and be patient entering the body. Because those memories are stored there as well. A lot of times when we are faced with a fearful situation, we want to climb out of the body and into the mind. Um, But the mind is equated with the air element, subject to the winds of change. The body is equated with the earth element, grounded and sturdy. So the next time we're faced with a hindrance, you know, you go to the body for refuge before you practice the antidote or while you're practicing the antidote. Okay, so that's the preamble to the sutta. And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating the body as body? Here, a monk, having gone into the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty space, sits down, cross-legged, holding his body erect, having established mindfulness before him. So you don't obviously have to go to uh, the root of a tree, but an empty space is good. And you don't have to obviously sit down cross-legged. You can sit in a chair. Actually, there's four postures for meditation that we'll learn in the sutta. Sitting, lying down, standing, and walking. But you just get as comfortable as you can so that aversion doesn't arise. And you establish mindfulness before you. This is normally understood to be in this area. It's before us. When we concentrate the mind, we put it right here. Mindfully, the monk breathes in. Mindfully, he breathes out. Which is what we're getting practice with. Breathing in a long breath, he knows that he breathes in a long breath. And breathing out a long breath, he knows he breathes out a long breath. Breathing in a short breath, one knows one breathes in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath, one knows one is breathing out a short breath. And one trains oneself, thinking, I will breathe in, conscious of the whole body. One trains oneself, thinking, I will breathe out, conscious of the whole body. One trains oneself, thinking, I will breathe in, calming the whole body bodily process, and breathe out, calming the whole bodily process. This is a reference to relaxing the body and how important that is. Just as a skilled turner, a turner of a lathe, which makes wood in his day, just as a skilled turner or his assistant in marking a long turn on the lathe uh, knows that he's making a long turn or making a short turn on the lathe knows he's making a short turn, so too a monk in breathing in a long breath knows He's breathing in a long breath and trains himself thinking I will, and also I will train myself thinking I will breathe out 
uh, calming the whole body. That's just repeating the prior instructions. So learning the breathing uh, contemplation is is um, the first step in the whole sutta. There are 13 steps we'll go through in the sutta. This is the first one, and it's it sets up the rest of it. If you don't got breathing, it's hard to get the rest. It's not in the doesn't take the pride of place of being first for no reason. Once you can get the breath, you can get the rest of the body. And then you can go on to feelings and mind objects and the rest. One normally who's meditating is mindful of the breath with the eyes closed in our sitting posture, but you can do it with the eyes open as well. I mean, just practice right now. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, teaching um, about a month ago, and I did the you know beginning class for the newcomers who'd never meditated before, and they were all sitting around a table. They've got a really nice sangha in Charlotte. It's and there was a lot of newcomers that night. And I was teaching them, you know, just to be mindful of your breath as you're listening to me. And they were all had their eyes open and they but they were doing it and they were fascinated that they could be mindful of their breath while they were listening and with their eyes open. And I was doing the same thing as I was talking as I am now. So my this breath meditation is a useful thing to have. You can do it. And nobody will know you're doing it in the conversation, standing in line, driving. So mindfulness of breath is handy and portable. And if your access method is the breath, you'll get a lot of practice with it. All right, and then there's the refrain um, after... Each of the 13 practices, there's a refrain, and it's identical. So so, um, I'll talk a little bit about the refrain, but first I'll read it. So one abides, contemplating body as body, internally, contemplating body as body, externally, contemplating body, both internally and externally. What that normally means is my internal, what's going on internally for me, and what's going on internally for you. Not internally for you, but my experience of what's going on for you. So in other words, internally it's my breath, externally I'm being mindful of your breath. This really helps if somebody is breathing loudly near you, and otherwise it would be a hindrance, You could just switch from mindfulness of your breath to mindfulness of theirs. And this, like I said, is a refrain for all 13 practices. So it's being mindful of my Vedana, being mindful of what I think is somebody else's Vedana, being mindful of my mind states as well as what I think is somebody else's mind states. And it depersonalizes it. Oh, that's just anger in him or her. I know that. 
right? So one abides contemplating body internally, externally, or both, mine and somebody else's. And uh, one abides contemplating the arising uh, phenomena in the body and the vanishing phenomena in the body, or both. So that's arising and passing of sensation in the body, the arising and passing of each breath, the arising and passing of each itch or pain. And we'll get to all these things, but right now we're just talking about the breath. So it's the arising and vanishing of each breath. It's a contemplation of impermanence. The arising and passing away. And, or, let's see, or else he's, he's mindful that there is a body just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. And one abides not independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating body as body. All right, so there's three alternative modes of practice for contemplating body as stated in this refrain. Uh, Internally, externally, or both internally and externally. Arising or vanishing, or both. And simply established to the extent necessary for knowledge and mindfulness. This third practice, simply necessary for knowledge and mindfulness. That's sometimes referred to as bare awareness or bare attention. And Analio says that that one is pretty advanced, that practice. So first, it's internal or external or both. Second, it's arising and passing or both. Third, it's just enough for bare attention. And really what Analia winds up saying is that they're stated in the order of progression of advancement. So first you got to get your own and or another's experience of breathing before you can get the impermanence of the nature of breathing, before you can get bare attention of the nature of breathing. So these are progressively more difficult instructions. So it's enough if you can just be mindful of your own breathing, basically. That's the first one, internal breathing. And then when you get more advanced, the impermanent nature of the breath, and then when you get more advanced still, just bear attention on the breath. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That's the last instruction in the refrain for all of these uh, foundations we'll be talking about. And basically, when you're independent and not clinging to anything in the world, you're not depending on anyone else's interpretation of this teaching for how it works for you. You practice it and read the sutta and decide for yourself how it works and what it means. Okay, let's go on then. The first one was... uh, Breathing, the next one is the four postures. Again, a monk, when walking, knows that he is walking. 
When standing, knows that he is standing. When sitting, knows that he is sitting. When lying down, knows that he is lying down. In whatever way his body is disposed, he knows that that's how it is. So he abides contemplating body internally, externally, or both, arising, vanishing, or both of these postures, or with bare attention, independent, not clinging to anything in the world regarding the postures. So in addition to being appropriate for mindful meditation, whatever posture you're in, and notice the one you're in now, be mindful of the posture you're in now, um, these are appropriate postures for meditating. And Analia says they provide a mode for maintaining continuity of mindfulness. So you're not just being mindful of the posture as you're sitting, you're also at the end of the sit being mindful of the posture you, the many postures you establish as you get up from sitting and then stand. And then you're mindful of the next posture of walking. And then when you go to lay down, of laying down. So this helps us to maintain our continuity of mindfulness, which increases our concentration so that we come back in here, we don't have to start from square zero. So it might take some proprioceptive awareness to be mindful of the body um, and its postures. If your eyes are closed when you're trying to be mindful of the body or its postures, proprioceptive awareness, it's the felt sense of the body's presence. You might not be able to see it, but you can feel it. And you might even need proprioceptive awareness with your eyes open if you're trying to feel the tingling inside the hand or the warmth inside the hand. So it's the ability to be with the body without seeing what you're being mindful of. Space inside the hands. the felt sense both inside and outside the body. You don't have to see it to experience it. Sometimes it's a tingling, that numb feeling when your limb goes to sleep. But it but we're talking about a more subtle awareness. Okay, so it's these the four postures, and it's not an exclusive list. It's any posture your body can be put into. So in this way, even the most mundane activities can be turned into occasions for mental development and to maintain your momentum of mindfulness. So, and Analio says, uh, Analio, who wrote the book, A-N-A-L-A-Y-O, Bhikkhu Analio, he's a German monk, who wrote the book on mindfulness that came out back in 2003 that was a huge success and still is, and he's written 
bunch of stuff since then. I highly recommend him. Yeah, many more. But on the Sati, he's written two more books on the Satipatthana. He says that once mindfulness of the four postures um, has led to a grounding of awareness in the body, then you're ready for the next contemplation, uh, which is clearly knowing a range of activities of the body. So being mindful of postures is a groundwork for, for the next area, which is clear awareness of bodily activities or full awareness of bodily activities. Okay. Then let's go on to full awareness, sometimes called clear awareness of daily activities. Again, a monk, when going forward or back, backwards, forwards or backwards, walking, forwards or backwards, up or down jack steps, is clearly aware of what he's doing. In looking forward or backwards, he's clearly aware of what he's doing. In bending and stretching, clearly aware. In carrying his inner and outer robe and his bowl, clearly aware. In eating, drinking, chewing, savoring, he's clearly aware of what he's doing in passing excrement or urine, clearly aware of what he's doing, of walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, and waking up. He's clearly aware. In speaking, or even staying silent, he's clearly aware. So he abides, contemplating body internally and externally, so you're aware of my steps going up, the feet going up the steps and somebody else's up there. <laughs> Internally and externally, arising and f- passing away, enough for bare attention. Independent and not clinging to anything in the world. So this is all based on your experience, not what I'm telling you. We're really getting in now to momentum of mindfulness and maintaining it in every activity. When we reach for the doorknob, when we open the door, put on our glasses, reach for a cup, blow our nose, Nothing gets left out. So, you know, we want to build upon these breathing and postures and now all of our activities throughout the day. Okay, let's do the last part that I wanted to get to this morning, I think. All right, reflection, my version, this in the longer discourse, it says reflection on the repulsive parts of the body. But what I'm going to wind up saying before we're all done is uh, something that Analio talks about, which his point is going to be 
that Buddhism does not teach that the body is repulsive. So if you can just hang out with me for a minute, I'm going to make that point in in about 15 minutes or less. Again, a monk reviews this very body. And of course, this is progressive now. We've done breathing, we've done postures, we've done daily activities. So now this is getting even you know, more advanced. But something I'd lo- love for you guys to give a whirl with, if you can, on this retreat. He abides, um, again, a monk reviews this very body from the soles of the feet upward and from the scalp downward, enclosed by the skin and full of manifold impurities. In this body, there are head hairs and body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, pleura, whatever that is, spleen, lungs, mesentery, bowels, stomach, excrement, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, tallow, saliva, snot, synovic fluid, and urine. And this is an interesting thing that I'm about to say, too. Just as if there were a bag, open at both ends, full of various kinds of grains, such as hill rice, patty, green graham, kidney beans, sesame, husked rice. And a man with good eyesight were to open the bag and examine all these things inside. He would say, this is hill rice, this is patty, this is green graham. These are kidney beans, this is sesame, this is husked rice. So too a monk reviews this very body. In this body there are all those things. So we're reviewing the body as a bag with a bunch of stuff in it. In the Satipatthana Sutta, in the middle length discourses, it talks about a bag having a hole at both ends. One at the top of the bag where the where the seeds go in and one at the bottom of the bag where the seeds go out for when you're sowing the land. And viewing that is similar to our body. All right. So at the negative end of the spectrum, if there was a spectrum, with viewing the body as repulsive on one end, it's beautiful on the other. Um, at the negative end, Uh, is this bag that might have holes at both ends um, and some of the parts of the body in it. Um, Interestingly and and apparently in ancient India, such a bag appears to have been used for agricultural sowing uh, with the upper opening for receiving seeds and the lower for as an outlet for sowing the fields. And of course, it's, this is similar to the body, which has an upper opening for the intake of food and a lower opening for the discharging of the food after digestion. The purpose of this bag simile is to remove sexual attachment to the body and to move repul- remove uh, repulsion to other bodies and cultivating a proper understanding of their true nature of a body and impersonalize it. Similarly, the references to teeth, skin, and hair on one hand and mucus, pus, and urine on the other are kind of balanced uh, 
with repulsive and beautiful um, by driving home the point that in the end, all body parts, beautiful and ugly, are of the same nature. They're just parts of the body, which are subject to aging, getting sick, and dying. Analio makes really clear that the purpose of this contemplation uh, does not mean uh, that we're supposed to have an attitude of disgust and aversion towards the body. Just seeing it as an impersonal process and a, a bag of parts. It's kind of the really the purpose is more to see it indifferently, especially for those who have decided to lead a life of celibacy. But it can help with the rest of us too. Who are, if we're investigating the impermanent nature of the body, seeing it more impersonally, so there's less dukkha. So the Buddhist teaching on the bag and parts are at the negative end of the spectrum. In the middle is the neutral perspective of the body, which Analio says includes the four postures. You know, that's real neutral. Uh, mindfulness of the postures has nothing to do with aversion or disgust. Um, in fact, if you felt repulsive towards the body, it would make it more difficult to be mindful of the postures. So mindfulness of the body is not a negative contemplation. And I would add that meditation on the breath and bodily activities are also neutral. So finally, on the positive end of the spectrum is the Buddhist teachings on the first four jhanas. With the attainment of the first jhana, um, you know, a positive perspective on the body emerges. And the first jhana uh, the snow, uh, the soap flakes are suffused with water to form a soap ball, and so similarly, the body is drenched uh, and steeped and saturated and suffused with wonderful qualities of rapture and happiness. So it's a very positive experience of the body. And in the second jhana, the simile talks about a current of cool water welling up from within a lake that would saturate the whole lake. Just like that, the whole body is saturated, you know, with happiness in the foreground. And in the third, the lotuses grow still in, in the water, never rising above the water, drenched and fused and and suffused within the water and so too the body dwells with contentment and in the fourth a man is covered with a white sheet or a white cloth and the and the and the body is suffused with a bright mind So these jhana similes are a far cry from regarding the body with disgust or as evil.
Instead, the body becomes a vessel through which we can experience incredible emotions like joy and happiness and contentment and equanimity. Okay, so even though it says reflection on the repulsive parts of the body, uh, I think we've shown that Buddhism doesn't regard the body as that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.